Arturo Toscanini was the conductor of the NBC Philharmonic. One evening he was conducting them in practice for a performance of Beethoven's symphony. This was just a rehearsal. And in one of the rehearsals, Toscanini did a particularly masterful job. And when the piece was over, the entire orchestra, who had never played that well, got up off their feet and began a huge round of applause. Red-faced, Toscanini motioned for them to sit down. And with his voice breaking, he looked at them and he said, you don't understand. It wasn't me. It was Beethoven. That's what lifted you up. That's what swept you up. It's Beethoven. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. I'm going to be camping out in Romans chapter 8. So if you'll turn your Bibles there. Last week, we looked at the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in you. The Spirit of God is the presence of God. And all through the Old Testament, the promise of the Father is that one day I will be present with my people all the time. I will be in them and they'll be in me. And that's what it means to have God's Holy Spirit. Every Christian, by virtue of the fact that we've been plunged in the waters of baptism, we have been plunged into the Spirit of God. Now, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, has a promise that comes to us because of that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. A good friend of mine likes to say it this way. You are as saved now as you will ever be. I love that line. The confidence that we have in Christ is that because we are in him, And because he is in us, God doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us in our Savior. Now, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? And how is that different than being in God's spirit or God's spirit being in us? Remember when Jesus was on this earth, Jesus didn't teach us the value of self-reliance. Yes, I believe in self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But he doesn't teach us the value of self-reliance. Even Jesus was led by the Spirit of God. In Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4, these passages begin the conversation about the temptation. And they say, Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. It's interesting that happens right after his baptism by John. It's interesting that happens right at the beginning of his earthly ministry. It's an announcement that Jesus came to do the will of God and God's spirit is what empowered him to do that. When you get to John 14, Jesus begins to talk to his disciples about his leaving. And he tries to remind them that the same God who loves me loves you. The same father who's given me a command to live a certain way is giving that command to you. And the same spirit that empowers me is going to empower you. And he says, I will not leave you orphans. 
I will come to you. A few verses later, he says, it's good that I go away because if I go away, then I will be able to send my helper, my comforter to you. And then just a few verses after that, he says, if the spirit is in you, then I will come to you and my father will be in you. Hear this now. The presence of God's spirit means the presence of the entire family of God. Not just to live within you, but to be there for you, to empower you. So it's not a coincidence that three times in the New Testament, whenever the writers try to talk about who this spirit is, three times, the text says that the spirit that's in you is the spirit of Jesus. I'll show it to you. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 19 is one place. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11 is another place. The spirit that's in you is the spirit of Jesus, the spirit that empowered Jesus, the spirit that represents Jesus. And then the third place is right here in Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. What are they getting at? If the spirit lives within you, that's another way of saying Jesus Christ, the same one who walked along the shores of Galilee, the same one who died in your place, the spirit of God that empowered him is empowering you. And the same Jesus who lived then is alive and well in you. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So here's this power language. The spirit is in you. Christ is in you. The father is in you. What is he doing in you? I'm glad you asked. Last week, the lesson was he lives in you. Tonight, the lesson is he works in you. There's a lot to be said that's good about self-help. You know, and I know, what can happen if you decide that I'm just not going to do anything. You know that it's a good thing when you have generations before us that teach us the value of hard work, work ethic, showing up, doing what needs to be done. I honor and value that. I know you do too. But Paul has something to say in the spiritual realm when our focus is on what we do for God, forgetting that it's God who is at work for you. Read with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Notice how he says you're free in Christ because of what God has accomplished. The focus on your freedom is on the work of God. And here's where it gets really interesting. 
You know that if you're in Christ, you have God's spirit. If you're in Christ, you've been plunged in God's spirit. If you're in Christ, you are uh, in possession of God's spirit. Then why, oh why, in Ephesians 5 and verse 18, does Paul write to Christians and he gives this command? Don't get drunk with wine wherein there's debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. How strange is it to tell people who have God's Spirit, here's a command, be filled with the Spirit. It's an interesting turn of phrase, and James does something very similar, and it helps me understand that. Do you remember that passage in James chapter 1 that says, receive the implanted word? I wonder how many of you have ever been to the dentist to get an implant. Uh, I went kicking and screaming. And I'm trying to think what would happen if after putting an implant in my mouth, the dentist wakes me up from all the gas and says, receive it. What do you mean receive it? It's in there. I've got it. Implanted means I didn't have to receive it. I've got it. How do you receive something you've already got? Well, it's amazing, 2,000 years later, that analogy has a lot more significant meaning to it because of what we can do with organ donation. There are people, maybe even people in this room, who have benefited from the fact that you can have somebody else's liver, somebody else's lung, somebody else's heart put into your body, and then the doctor will come out and tell the family, good news, we have implanted the organ. Let's just pray that his body will receive it. God says every believer has access to God's spirit, God's presence, God's power. But Romans 8 says, will you receive it? In verse 4, the first two words of verse 4 is, in order that, first three words, why does God do these great things? Why has he saved us? Why is there no condemnation in Christ Jesus? Why has God made right what we could never do? So that the righteous requirements of the law may be fulfilled in us. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For those that are led by the Spirit of God are sons of of God. You see, this is how we overcome. When we realize that God has put his spirit within us to empower us so that the works of God might be done in us. God wants to work. God wants to work in you. The question is, will you receive it? There's a view out there that while resting in the love and grace of God, which is the right place to rest, misunderstands the application of that and says, because you're free in Christ, that means it doesn't matter how you live. You see, once God saved you, they say, God's hands are now tied. And no matter what happens from here on out, no matter how debauched your life becomes, no matter if you turn your back on him and spit in his face and say, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, God's hands are tied. And they'll use Galatians to make the argument, which is ironic. 
Because the last two chapters of Galatians, Paul says on two different occasions, I warned you when I was with you, and I warn you now that those whose lives are characterized in these ways will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it doesn't make any sense to warn people twice about a situation that could never possibly apply to them. How we live matters. Judgment at the end will be based on a total life lived in the presence of Christ. And so it's true that how we live matters. As James says, you want to show me what you believe? Show me how you live, and then I'll show you what you believe. So Romans chapter 8 is saying God is wanting a certain life change in you. But it's still true that I don't have what it takes to make the change. This is where we have to avoid the twin pole problems. Problem number one is that I don't need God. I can do this on my own. There's a movie several years ago called A Beautiful Mind. The movie is based on a true story about a, a doctor, uh, about a professor who lives uh, in Princeton. Now, in real life, he heard voices. Now, it's hard in a movie to portray that. So in the movie, he sees visions and he sees these uh, people around him that aren't really there. And uh, about halfway through the movie, he realizes that they're not really there. He knows there's a problem. And he's sitting at a table with the doctor. And the doctor says, is the little girl in the room right now? And he says, well, I see her over there playing jacks on the floor. But I know she's not really there. And the doctor says, we're going to have to put you through a system so that we can fix the problem. He says, I don't need the system. I can fix the problem. I can fix it with my mind. And the doctor looks at him and says, I don't think you understand. Your mind is the problem. I love that illustration. We know that God wants us to live a different way. Okay, then I've got what it takes. I'll just push a button and I'll live a different way. Don't you get it, says God. You can't fix the problem. You are the problem. So why does he give us the spirit? He gives us the spirit so that by the power of the spirit, we can finally accomplish what we could never do ourselves. It is God who wants to be at work in you so that God can accomplish the work that needs to be done by you. The question is, will you let him do it? Look at the language of God at work in the scriptures. Philippians chapter one and verse six. I'm confident of this, says Paul, that he who began a good work in you is going to stay at it and see it to completion at the day of Christ. One chapter later, Philippians chapter two and verse 13, he tells the Philippians, don't you get it? It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work. For his good's pleasure. God is doing the work that God has called to be done. It reminds me of Jesus who accepts the task and then is led by the spirit of God. The problem with self-reliance is that we forget that we are the problem. So the command 
The command is that you need God to accomplish the will of God. But the other problem, Paul, is thinking that there's no responsibilities for me. It is possible for us to either lay down our swords, lay down our fight, lay down the job, and not allow God to use us and mold us to be different people than we were before. It's also possible to look at what God's done in our lives, and instead of giving him credit, give ourselves credit. But Romans chapter 8 says, you are free in Christ because of what God did. Therefore, the righteous requirements of the law can finally be accomplished among us as we yield ourselves over to the Spirit of God. But then verses 9 through 11, it is the Spirit of God who's at work in you. And if the Spirit of Christ is in you, then the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will raise your mortal bodies and give life to them through his Spirit who dwells in you. Arturo Toscanini was the conductor of the NBC Philharmonic. One evening he was conducting them in practice for a performance of Beethoven's symphony. This was just a rehearsal. And in one of the rehearsals, Toscanini did a particularly masterful job. And when the piece was over, the entire orchestra, who had never played that well, got up off their feet and began a huge round of applause. Red-faced, Toscanini motioned for them to sit down. And with his voice breaking, he looked at them and he said, you don't understand. It wasn't me. It was Beethoven. That's what lifted you up. That's what swept you up. It's Beethoven. If you ever go to an AA meeting, you'll realize that people who have come to recognize that they are powerless to fix what's broken within them stand and they confess. We admit we're powerless over our problem. Our lives are unmanageable. We believe a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. And we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. I wonder what would happen if all of us came to church with name tags that said, known sinner. And if every time we got up to make an announcement or wait on the table or give a sermon or teach a Bible class or shake your hand at the welcome desk, we began by saying hi. I'm Nathan, and I struggle. But by the power of God, I'm not who I used to be. And by the power of God, tomorrow, I'll be better than I was today. Because it's God at work in me, both to will and to do His good pleasure. And when we are different, and people see our difference, and they want to give us credit and glory for changing who we used to be and who we are now. We look at them and we say, it's not me. It's God's spirit. Won't you give your life to him? Won't you let him work his work in you so that you will be different? You'll be more like him 
when he comes back to receive us into himself. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.